is Ugh. here. I I literally brought I bought the entire sweater weather Samuel Adams pack today. It's so good. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I was I've just been in like full fall mode and I've been loving it. I mean, I've been buying mums, buying pumpkin beer. I made a fall themed cocktail for my spooky sisters tonight. Like I'm just in my head it's October, which would be horrifying cuz that made my that would mean my wedding was like weeks away instead right. of a month away. You would but you got a lot to do. I have a lot to do. Um but <laughs> It'll get done. It will get done. It's just hard because, like, I forget that, like, everyone who's planning, like, not everyone, most people who are, like, planning a wedding have never done it before. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so it's, it's hard because you always feel like you're like, someone take the wheel. Can, like, someone needs to, like, not let me make any decisions because I feel like I'm making all the wrong ones. <laughs> Those are called wedding planners. They cost money. Um, oh, that's right. Damn it. Um, uh, but you know what? COVID did bless you with an extra two and a half years to get this That's wedding planned. That's true. That's true. Um, so, yeah, that was nice of COVID to do that for me. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about weddings. We're here to talk about herstory. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women and groups of women. Yes. From all times and places because women have but keep in mind we're drinking the entire time and we're not historians yes <laughs> uh, that's probably our biggest fault yes it is mm-hmm. um so but before we get into the stories you are also prepping for fall you're buying decor you are hanging garlands of autumnal leaves around the hearth uh you're putting on your sweaters i mean it's still going to be 85 degrees tomorrow but don't worry you can always take the sweater off and just wear the tank top underneath. You could. I mean, Pro you tip. could possibly even be sitting on a Zoom meeting with like one AirPod in yes. and you don't want to look down at your phone and be rude to Google something. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Exactly. In your fall sweater. You're doing a lot. So the main message is you can't stop and Google these women. So we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Ellie, who are you doing and what do they look like? <laughs> I'm doing the aforementioned group of women, the Bronte sisters, which I'm super excited about. All three girls were small in stature, ranging from 4'10 to 5'6. They all had brown hair of different shades and mm-hmm. darkish eyes. Charlotte Bronte was very self-conscious about her appearance and considered her head to be too large for her body. In a sketch she made of herself, she kind of suggested that the tip of her nose was turned up at the end, which is a trait amongst her family. Emily was thin, but like supple and graceful. She was the tallest person in the house apart from her father. So she was the one that was five, six. Her hair was naturally in a very tight curl that was often described as frizzy. And this Hmm. is like Mm pre-product. So that's hard. (laughs) And then Anne is generally considered the quote, pretty Bronte sister. She had light brown hair that was pale gold in color and fell gracefully in in light curls on her neck. She had these like deep violety brown eyes um, and pencil thin eyebrows with an almost transparent complexion. 
but she was pretty quiet and people say that she could have possibly had a lisp. Hmm. So that's what the Bronte sisters okay. looked like. <laughs> what does your group of women look like? I am doing the Fox sisters. Um, so all of the three sisters had pretty similar traits. They were white middle-class women with long dark, dark hair parted in the middle. They had, and like the most famous, like, etching of them they have very somber looks these round haunting eyes um and in this portrait of them maggie the middle child and leah the oldest are wearing these like black capes which are closed in the front exposing only their hands but kate the youngest stands behind them with her black cape kind of open and showing like a light colored button-up dress and her hair, rather than, you know, parted down the middle and pinned up and back, is in long braids draping over her shoulders. Very Ooh. pretty. But, um, but yeah, so they could typically be seen uh, around a table or up on a stage with big skirts. And uh, sometimes their eyes rolling into the back of their heads if they were being touched by the spirit. Mm. <laughs> Okay. So we're doing a gaggle of women. Yes, there's evening. so <laughs> many ladies we're talking about. So listen up because this might be confusing. Listen up, <laughs> buckle up, get a drink, take a bath. It'll exactly. be good. Um, so can you, are you done? I'm done. Okay, can you tell me what this drink is? Because yes. it looks so luscious. It's like a similar shade to your one from two weeks ago. It is. Color. I was thinking that because I decided, I was like, you know what? I have this port. I'm going to use it again. Um, you're welcome, Miss Krista. You're welcome. So this is called Fox's Brew. Um, so it is an ounce and a half of bourbon, an ounce of apple schnapps, Ooh. a half ounce of port, and a half ounce to like three-fourths of an ounce of apple cinnamon simple syrup. And you shake that all together, and then you garnish it with just like a big like slice of apple. I mean, sounds like a dream. <laughs> true. Cheers. Mm. So fall. So deep, so dark. So nice. <sighs> so spooky. Mm. <laughs> God, I just like whenever we get into like New England and like New York in the 1800s, like I just have to do an apple cinnamon It is. Thing. It, and it's great when it falls in the fall, like mm -hmm. the autumn time, mm -hmm. because it's lovely. Mm. All right. So what do you know about the Fox sisters? Okay. So I know... Just like Mary Todd Lincoln, they were into the spooky spookies, mm -hmm. uh, very spiritualist. I know that they would have like swooning spells, like when they like they would faint or like give the appearance of fainting. Um, and that's really all I know about them. I know of them as being like these people who could connect with the other side. Mm -hmm. But I don't know anything about their family, their like financial standing, their popularity during their life. I just like basic gist of like, oh, yeah, I've heard of them. Perfect. Um, well, yeah, we don't know too much about their family, unfortunately. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed. I really wanted more backstory on them. Um, but yeah, so, but my sources were on um, the podcast Stuff You Missed in History class and this BuzzFeed YouTube video called The Rise and Fall of the Fox Sisters and, of course, Wikipedia. Okay. Our story begins on a cold winter's night in the sleepy hamlet of Hydesville, New York, which, spookily enough, no longer exists. <gasps> this town doesn't exist anymore. 
<laughs> Sounds like, okay, that's a perfect beginning to a novel. What is it? What, what is that Christmas Carol? Marley was dead to begin with. Yes. Right? Isn't that the first yes. line? <laughs> the town. What's the name of the town? Um, Hydesville. Hydesville and I like was that dead it, they to begin des- with. They describe it as a hamlet, too, which I think Ooh. is so charming. Oh, man. Okay. All right. The Fox family had just begun renting a house in the neighborhood in the hopes of getting a fresh start. John and Margaret Fox had recently gotten back together after splitting up for a few years due to John's alcoholism. The two had several children together. Some sources said only four. Some sources said seven. So I don't really know. (laughs) Um, But now he was sober and ready to really be there for his two youngest daughters, the ones that were left in the house, Margareta, known as Maggie, and Catherine, who went by Kate. They thought that they had gotten just this fantastic deal on this house. It was this giant old farmhouse that they just like never thought they could afford anything like it. But then they started to notice that people in the town were kind of weird about the house and they like weren't coming over for donut Sunday after church. Like (laughs) just not really wanted to take part. Um, And they didn't want any stale donuts after a church meeting. No. (laughs) And then they figured out why Uh, it's because the house was indeed haunted. (laughs) Yes. A haunted house. So the first few months in the house were rather uneventful. Oh, But in March of 1848, 14-year-old Maggie and 11-year-old Kate started hearing mysterious noises throughout the house. There were knocks, raps, rattles, and shakes and scratches. Sometimes the noises were so loud they shook the furniture. The girl said that it was probably nothing, maybe even like a prank by some neighbors. I mean, it's like March, so April Fool's is like around the corner. It's probably it. But their mother, Margaret, was a very superstitious woman, and she was absolutely losing her mind. (laughs) I mean, yes, yes, by a dog. Yes. So the Fox family kind of had a history of members who said they could see the future and things like that. So Margaret Fox was a woman who, like, definitely believed in otherworldly things. Mm. Um. But she was losing sleep. She's getting more and more anxious by the day. The noises won't stop. And then one night, the girls finally call out to the spirit who they had named Mr. Splitfoot, which apparently was another name for the devil. It's like an old nickname for the devil. I didn't know. Oh, so because they're he's like, hooved? I guess so. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, Splitfoot hooved. So they're like, hey, devil. Um, <laughs> Lucifer. <laughs> devil, devil, devil. So... <laughs> They said, Mr. Splitfoot, if you are a spirit, copy this noise. And Maggie tapped the table three times. And it repeated three knocks. Then they made more specific noises. They snapped and clapped, and it repeated everything. It's called Necco. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I'm so in. I'm so in. I'm sorry. (laughs) Margaret then asked the spirit to count to ten. And ten knocks rung throughout the house. And then they all get really into it. So she starts to get a little more specific. She asked the spirit to knock the age of all of her children in order. And it did. 35 knocks for their older sister, Leah, 14 for Maggie, and 11 for Kate. And then it paused for like an extra long time and did three more knocks for a child that had died in infancy. She asked if it was human. No response. She said, 
Are you a spirit? Two knocks for yes. Then the floodgates really started opening and Margaret had all sorts of questions. She said, are you an injured spirit? Two knocks. Were you injured in the house? Two knocks. Question after question until she was like, wow, I can't believe it. A real fucking ghost in my own house. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, we won the lottery. And now that she's like, okay, this ghost likes to talk. Like, he's not going to hurt us. So then she just starts blabbing to all her neighbors about it. Soon, about a dozen neighbors are at the house just trying to get spooked by a spirit. They asked Mr. Splitfoot about their own lives, how many kids they had, what ages their kids were. They just, like, loved that question. So, wait, I I have a serious... Did people think she was crazy or are they buying it? No. People were buying it. People were definitely buying it. So, it's like a time when this is not like, we're going to burn you at the stake for talking about spirits. This is like a time when everybody's like... We're in. Let's meet your ghost. Yes. And we'll get into kind of like why people were very ready to believe at this time in a bit. Fox sisters and the friendly ghost. Mm -hmm. Soon they were contacting the spirits so often that they had this entire communication system worked out so they could get more detailed answers. So now it's not just yes or no. Now it's like, okay, here's the alphabet. (laughs) And these actually like spelling out answers. Oh, like the Ouija board. Mm -hmm. Mm. So they soon discovered that this ghost was a 31-year-old peddler who was a father of five who had been brutally murdered in the home just a few years prior. They said... Okay, well, if he was murdered here in the basement, like he said, there must be some proof. So the neighborhood decides that they're going to excavate the fox's basement. (laughs) It was Belle Gunness. (laughs) She did it. Probably. So they start digging and they did find a little bit of hair and some bone fragments. You know, nothing like too convincing quite yet. But then the project gets put on hold because spring storms come and the cellar floods. So they like literally can't dig anymore. But even without concrete proof, the news of the haunted house of Hydesville starts to spread. And more than just neighborhood people come in, like people are coming over from other towns to witness the ghost happenings. And Mr. Splitfoot's getting a little more dramatic. Communication is getting easier, so he really gets into the story of the struggle and like sound effects. I just can't even picture this. (laughs) And then people start to notice that the spirit would really only present himself when Maggie and Kate were around. He really liked to communicate kind of through them, which some people took as a sign that the girls were touched. You know, they had some sort of connection to the other side. And so they're not uh, thinking they're like the girls from the, the crucible. No. <laughs> Where they're just like fainting and calling people witches. Yeah. And that's the thing. Others thought it was a bit suspicious. Uh, this meant that while they were about town, uh, people had a lot of different reactions to them. Some people treated them like, oh my gosh, you are special beings who were like in touch with other realms. And others thought they were evil witches who should be cast out of society. <laughs> and then some people thought they were just like silly teenage girls was playing a prank so the legend is growing and soon the older sister leah comes home to like figure out what the heck is going on back home 35 <laughs> year old leah yep. <laughs> because at this time again she's 35 she's split up from her husband and she's just kind of working as a music teacher to support her and her daughter 
And I think she's pretty bored. So she gets really interested in what her sisters are up to. So she's like, hey, mom, dad, like, let me just take them back to Rochester with me. This house is obviously like not good for them. It's not a good environment. So like, why don't, why don't I just take them to Rochester for a little like R&R? But to their surprise, the spirits also needed a vacation. So the ghost just followed them to Leah's house. And then they got some new ghosts because Leah lived next to a graveyard. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. At least you know their names. Exactly. So the girls laid low for a bit in Rochester. um, But then this nice Quaker couple named Amy and Isaac Post like kind of heard through the grapevine that they could talk to ghosts and they asked them, they're like, Hey, look, our daughter passed away. Do you think you could get in contact with her? And they're like, we can totally try. So they do a seance with them. And Leah is actually the one who goes into a trance and communicates with their daughter. And they are hook, line and sinker, like all in on these sisters And so they tell their Quaker friends and the Quaker community becomes the backbone of the early spiritualist movement. Yeah, the Quakers are really cool. They're very cool. And I didn't know this like I knew they were always like spiritual because like I that's like the whole thing of their meetings. It's like there is no like pastor or anything. You just like get up and speak if the spirit moves you. Right. They're very woke. They're, Mm -hmm. they were anti-slavery. They were pro women. They were always trying to give a helping hand to the people who needed it. Like, it's yeah. a pretty, pretty tight religion. It really is. And then I think this is so fascinating that because the Quakers were the first to really latch on to spiritualism, that's why you had people like Victoria Woodhall and like Tennessee Woodhall get involved in spiritualism and all this because they were closely tied with abolition, women's rights, temperance, just like you said. Yeah. So then we had this weird like fusion of the two things that I didn't know. <laughs> Yeah, and they've got some good oatmeal. <laughs> they do. They have some fantastic oats. The most famous oats, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> so just to give you a little history on spiritualism, since we're in that ballpark right now, um, it had been around for a while. Um, you know, the Fox sisters did not start it. Um, it had been growing out of the writings and work of these two men, Emanuel Swedenborg and Franz Mesmer. So... These guys had kind of their own belief system about heaven and hell, which a lot of people clung on to because they had these very direct answers to one of our core questions about life. What happens after we die? And the two very strong beliefs that came out of Swedenborg's writing were first that there is no single hell and a single heaven but rather a series of higher and lower heavens and hells. Like it kind of reminds me of like a good place situation Mm. where like there are these like levels, you know, and like it's not cut and dry. Oh, the seven layers of hell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, second is that the spirits are intermediates between God and humans. So that like the divine sometimes uses them as a means of communication. So people are like, okay, not cut and dry on heaven and hell, but there are spirits that can communicate. So like this kind of gave people a lot of hope of like, okay, so we can figure out more about this. We just have to figure out how to talk to them. Okay. And that's where Franz Mesmer came in. 
he came up with the practice of hypnotism, or as he called it, mesmerism, as a way to contact the spirits. Um, so he would do the thing of like, you know, going into a trance, like, you know, showing someone like a ticking thing, you know, and just like to really like get in their head. Um, and he kind of pioneered that movement. So when you combine the two, you get spiritualism. <laughs> so it's like somebody holding the clock pendulum yes. in front of your face. And mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it also, so we have that going on. And the other big thing is just that the world is changing in the 1800s. There are all these like crazy technological advancements that blew people's minds, making them think that anything was possible. I mean, it's the industrial revolution. Yes. I mean, the telegraph suddenly made it possible for a person in California to communicate with someone in New York. People couldn't comprehend that. So it was like, well, if someone can communicate across space, why not communicate between dimensions? Right. Like the two were exactly the same to people back then. It was like they both see it at the same level of possibility. Well, the space-time continuum is just like such an interesting concept. And then, I mean, you even have it when people emigrate to different countries Mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, so this is real that I see on TV, but this isn't. Yeah. Like why is one real, but not the other? Yeah. Like I'm confused. Yeah. So people are just like in like a weird spot right now where they're like, okay, like this is blowing my mind. They're um, like George Orwelling it with 1984. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, like you eventually had ghost photography, which we know now is like simple double exposure. Like we talked about the Mary Todd Lincoln episode, but at the time it was scientific proof that ghosts were real for people, you know, like they're like, okay, I know they're real. I'm seeing it in a photograph. Like that's real. And so that came a little bit after the Fox sisters that really got it, got going after the civil war. Um, but it made what they were doing at the time, even more legitimate. So it's Mm. like the Fox sisters were around ghost photography came in and people were like, okay, now I really believe the Fox sisters. So, Again, all these things are happening at the same time, but no one seemed to have a concrete connection to the spirit world until the Fox sisters. And soon people start to hear that they can hold seances and contact the dead. Hmm. So they're in Rochester at this time with Leah, and they really kind of start to bank on this. So the way it would work is Maggie and Kate, the two younger girls, because that's also a thing. They're still very young at this point. Yeah, they I were mean, like they're, 14 and 8 or something when they were knocking they're, in the Yeah, they're, they were world. 11 and 14. So right. they're probably 12 and 15. And I also feel like having young women in this role is also like very convincing in a weird way. The way it would work is that Maggie and Kate would act as the mediums and Leah would be like the conductor of ceremonies, interpreting the events and whatnot and kind of running the show. The guests would arrive, sit around a table, they would say a prayer and they would sing and then hold hands and just wait in silence for a spirit to emerge. Then Maggie or Kate would fall into a trance and the knocks would begin Their seances were so immersive and exciting that more and more prominent people started to attend what would be known as the Rochester Wrappings. And then in November 1849, Leah makes a big announcement. The spirits wanted to go public. 
They wanted the girls to tell the world about spiritualism. So they rented out Corinthian Hall, the largest auditorium in Rochester. And they sold tickets at 25 cents a pop. (laughs) So... For this event, uh, Kate wasn't actually a part of this. She was out of town visiting a friend. So it's just Leah and Maggie for this one. And they rented out the place for four nights. And they're like, yep, four nights in a row. Come to the car, you know, the hall or Corinthian Hall or whatever. And we're going to talk to spirits every single night. So people definitely flocked to this event. (laughs) I mean, like. They filled the the auditorium, but the reaction like wasn't quite what they thought it would be. Some people were there because they really believed in them. And then there were a lot of skeptics in the crowd who had come because they thought the girls were going to reveal their secrets. So when people found out that they, in fact, were just going to go along with the charade and not just admit that they were liars, <laughs> they started yelling at them and jeering from the crowd And they were like, you guys are charlatans, like you're fakers. Some people threatened to arrest them for fraud. They called the police. Like, it was crazy. Already got your money, though, bitch. Yeah, really. And so the Fox sisters were finally like, okay, you know what? Send some people up here then while we're doing it. Fucking prove that we're faking it. They called their bluff. Mm. So the investigation began. They were physically investigated, like, very thoroughly, even made to undress for a group of women backstage, and they were, their bodies were searched to see if they had anything hidden. Um, And they were also, like, the, the stage was searched, everything like that, and then while they were on stage during the show, people from the town tied their legs together and put glass plates underneath of their feet just to make sure they weren't doing anything suspicious under their skirts to make the noises. Oh, I forgot how big their skirts were. Mm -hmm. Oh, that changes things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some hidden things. They didn't find shit. And the sisters were clear. They could not figure out how they were making these noises if they were. So the mystery grows, and so did the anger from people who thought that they were evil fraudsters. So on the last night of these four performances, they actually had to be escorted out from the theater by police because there was, like, a mob of people being like, Satan worshippers, like, Lucifer's babies. I hate you. Splitfoot's babies. Exactly. (laughs) Burn burn their books, burn their house down. They're Splitfoot babies. So... This series of shows and just the entire spectacle of it all, the investigation, the mobs, all of it really launched their career. And (laughs) a lot of people point to this event as the beginning of modern spiritualism because now it's becoming like much broader news. And a man named Andrew Jackson Davis, who is known as the Jean-Baptiste of modern spiritualism, (laughs) uh, he was working out of New York City, and he was very interested in what these girls were doing and their abilities. So he invites them to New York City to spread spiritualism there. He's like, I know that we can actually get through to people if we work together. So... They have this whole little crew now down in the big city and the spiritualist movement is really getting some steam by 1854. 
the movement had between one and two million followers in the U.S. Ooh. And the Fox sisters are performing public and private seances for sometimes hundreds of people at a time. So is this like the first like real like fortune yes. teller seance crew? Yes, this is the first crew. Okay. Yeah. So from what I understood, like there were some that came afterwards, I know. Um, but everyone said that like they were the first ones to really be doing this and making like a theatrical spectacle out of it mm. and making a ton of money while doing it. <laughs> right. I'm like, I have never like had a reading. I would love to do it. I've never done one either. Yeah. They're open literally 24 hours a day yeah. in Maryland. It's There's insane. So many. It's insane. <laughs> it's like we can't buy beer on Sundays, but we can get our fortune told anytime, any day. <laughs> Listen, it's really important around here. Um, but I just, uh, I would like, I love, that this is like setting the groundwork and I'm sure like people of other cultures in other places have done readings for much, much oh, longer, but yeah. it's very cool that this is like the American backstory. Oh yeah. No, it absolutely Of the is. spiritualist movement. I mm -hmm. love it. So they also start to get just like a really tight knit group of really famous and wealthy New Yorkers. Um, one of their most prominent followers was a guy named Horace Greeley. He was the founder and editor of the New York Tribune, and his unwavering support gave them a lot of credit around town. Get that clout. Exactly. Get it. People were like, if Horace Greeley is down for these girls, like, they must be real. He runs the newspaper. He's got to be respectable <laughs> right. and truthful. That's what we all think about the news. <laughs> and just as the movement started to evolve, so did their communication with the spirits. Now it's not just knocking and rapping anymore. Strange clouds would appear over people. Furniture would levitate. And Kate became especially good at spirit writing. She would go into a trance and the spirit would speak freely through her and onto the paper telling its story. But she was really good because it sounds like she's just writing on a piece of paper. She's a ghostwriter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In the truest sense of the word. Um, but she would be like kind of talking but writing down something different which is really hard to do and that's why it was convincing to people because the words she was saying weren't what she was writing yeah, i'm trying that like as soon as we turn off mike i tried <laughs> and what i was saying was wine and beer and what i wrote down was like cheese and wine it was like too similar like <laughs> I do. I will say I do write on the chalkboard and talk to my students on a regular basis and I'm writing something different than I'm saying, but my brain does get distracted. Yeah. And I slow down and spell things wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing. So they're doing all this. They also start to get a little bit more business savvy. They decide to divide and conquer. Leah stays in New York holding private and public seances and Maggie and Kate take the show on the road, spreading spiritualism across America like butter on toast. <laughs> but of course, more mediums are coming out and trying to get into the biz which means more people are getting caught and exposed as frauds. 
<laughs> so now there's kind of a whole new playing field out there because you have more people trying to get in on it and more people trying to expose the mediums for the charlatans that they are. Spiritualism gate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gotta add a gate to that. Exactly. <laughs> Fox gate. <laughs> um, it, and as we mentioned in the Cottingly Fairies episode, Harry Houdini was a famous medium hunter which is also could be a CBS procedural. And his goal in life was to rid the world of spiritualism. He's like, these people are terrible. They're stealing your money. Don't listen to them. I am a professional magician. <laughs> like, I mean, I, he is like really tricking people, but telling them he's tricking them. Yeah. So he's doing like the exact opposite. And I'm sure it's so annoying. Yeah. But I'm also, sure. I feel like that's a big male female thing. Oh, absolutely. Like a, a guy can be like, I'm tricking you. And you know I'm tricking you, but it's so cool. Give me your money. And a woman has to be like, I'm tricking you, but you don't know. And they're like, wow, whore. Okay, get out of here. Put her on the stake. I hate you. But the Fox sisters seemed to be untouchable. They were just so good at it that no one could expose them because they couldn't figure out how they were doing it. So... They just had to keep a tight ship and everything would be fine. Everything was good. You know, they'd swap the decks. All they had to do was keep it together. But just keep in mind, Kate and Maggie are in their late teens and early 20s. When this is taking off, they suddenly have lots of money, no parental supervision. And (laughs) it doesn't take long before they discover the downfall of all women, wine and men. No, same girl, same. <laughs> Snaps. So I had to put a little bit of port into this cocktail because wine is the downfall. Just kidding. Uh, yep. Functioning alcoholic. Yeah. In Reporting 18. <laughs> and in 1852, Maggie becomes involved with a well-known Arctic explorer who was 13 years her senior Named Elisha Kane. Yukon Cornelius, I thought. Pretty much. He was a real big skeptic of spiritualism. <gasps> but when he went to one of their seances, I think he kind of went to expose them. And he was like, damn, that girl Maggie is hot. And then they met and he was like, he was swept off his feet. <laughs> and soon they were married in a secret ceremony. Now, some doubt that the marriage was legit. Some people think that they didn't get married at all. Um, But throughout their five-year relationship, Elisha had one goal, to get Maggie out of this business (laughs) because he thought it was fraudulent and immoral and to make her Catholic. So, Uh, Ice Boy is such a Debbie Downer. I know, but being a good wife, she left her sisters and spiritualism behind while they were together. But so now it's just Leah and Kate on the road? Mm-hmm, now Hate it's just it. Leah and Kate. I thought Maggie was the best. <sighs> I know. But five years later, as I said, Elisha died, actually. So this made Maggie a young widow and suddenly Catholic because it was his last wish that she be baptized into the Catholic Church. So after he died... She did get baptized, which I guess makes sense because he might like totally haunt her if she didn't go through with it. Like, (laughs) just just, okay, connect with the Holy Spirit instead of with other people's spirits. Who cares? Whatever. Whatever you're going to do. I also think it was kind of a ploy to get his kind of uh, estate 
because his family never approved of her. And I think maybe she was like, maybe if I just like go ahead and like commit to the Catholic thing, you know, like they'll recognize me as his wife. But they didn't. They refused her status as a wife and a widow. So they just said, you have no claim to any of this estate, which really sucked because she'd given up her career for him. So now she didn't have anything because she couldn't work because that was her only the only thing she knew how to do. Right. So, yeah. So wait, she was a woman in the 1800s is what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she later published a book of their love letters called The Love Life of Dr. Kane, probably to be like, hey, we were together. So fuck you. Um, and also, I think it was an attempt to make some money. Um, but the book just was a big flop. It didn't really go anywhere. Yikes. And Maggie just sunk really deep into alcoholism and depression and soon found herself in just really horrible poverty by 1858. So that same year, 1858, Leah also leaves the business because she married. Um, This was her third husband. He was a wealthy businessman and she was kind of like, okay, like I'm kind of done with this. I don't need to work anymore. So I'm just going to be off with my husband. Yeah. Girls getting it. Mm -hmm. But Kate was still going strong, always improving her communication with the spirits. And then she traveled to England to help the growing spiritualism movement there. And in 1872, she meets a wealthy barrister and fellow spiritualist, Henry Diedrich Jenkin. So they marry and they had two sons and their marriage did last all the way until his death in 1881. Probably because she like married someone who actually believed in her. Um, (laughs) But after he died, always a good idea. mm -hmm, The pressure to perform was really starting to weigh on Kate. Um, Cause now she's like an older woman. She has like, she doesn't have a husband to support her and like help support her anymore. So she's not really doing it for fun anymore. She's doing it to like support her two children, which is a whole different ball game when you're talking about something like this. She's a single mom. Yeah. In a world that doesn't support women. Yeah. And she unfortunately also turns to alcohol, just like her sister. So she is spiraling. She moves back to the States to try and get a new start, try and fix things, but she just can't stop drinking. And then Leah decides to take things into her own hands and she calls basically like, you know, child protective services of the time, gets her kids taken away from her. Like, which I don't, cause like it does suck. Cause like, it doesn't seem like she was super fit to take care of them, but it's also like that would suck to have like your sister just like call the cops on you to be like, get these kids out of here. Yeah, it's but like, if they're not safe, I then know, it's like, what it do you sucks. do? Yeah. Like, the whole situation sucked. And then just Kate felt so betrayed by her sister. And then her alcoholism is only getting worse. And now the whole relationship between the three sisters is just extremely strained and Maggie who was the first to kind of fall is just the first to blame spiritualism and in October 1888 Maggie Fox told the New York Herald spiritism is a curse and she just started spilling all sorts of beans 
I mean, she's Catholic now. Yeah. <laughs> now, she did do some spiritualism work after that. Um, <laughs> that says Catholic. So she definitely went back to it. That says um, Catholic forever. But again, like as they were getting older, they just weren't making the money like they used to because I think they were kind of doing it for different reasons. Well, I and the know, market's like, diluted at that point. It is. There's it always absolutely a new is. And fancier show. It's true. Um, so she just talks about how the whole thing started off as a way to scare their mom they were like we knew our mom was superstitious and we decided just to play a prank on her and the prank kind of got out of hand so this is what she said my eldest sister took kate and me to rochester there it was that we discovered a new way to make the wraps my sister kate was the first to observe that by swishing her fingers they could produce certain noises with her knuckles and joints, and that the same effect could be made with the toes. Finding that we could make wraps with our feet, first with one foot, then with both, we practiced until we could do this easily when the room was dark. Like most perplexing things when made clear, it is astonishing how easily it's done. The wrapping is simply a result of perfect control of the muscles of the leg below the knee which govern the tendons of the foot and allow the action of the toe and ankle bones that are not commonly known. Such perfect control is only possible when the child is taken at an early age and carefully and continually taught to practice the muscles, which grow stiffer in the ears. This then is the simple explanation of the whole method of the knocks and wraps. It was all in the joints. They were literally just... Popping joints. Popping their joints. Popping and locking. Yeah. The whole time around. Yeah. And because they had started at an early age. They trained their body. They they literally fine-tuned their bodies to make their noises. Because, like, if you and I tried, I wouldn't be able to do that. I don't know what the hell they're doing. I can barely snap my fingers. I know. But, like, they were so in tune with their muscles and tendons and joints in their legs that they could just do it i wish my girl maggie would have had somebody like videotape her shit i know let me see it it. i would love to know actually how loud it was yeah correct that's a correct love to know that is it like one of those men that like can whistle with his fingers at a stadium probably (laughs) the loudest (laughs) and then she took it a step further and she masked magicianed this shit and she exposed all of their secrets on a stage for people. And at this point, Kate was also done. She joined Maggie on stage, backing up everything she said in her confession. She's like, yep, this is how we do it. And the spiritualism community was furious. They were like, no, 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 no. Like, no. They're lying. Spiritualism is real. Like ghosts are real, you know, and they just turn it into a smear campaign against the sisters. They're like their queens just threw their crowns back at them. Literally. And they basically just put it in the news. Like you're going to trust these alcoholics who like can't even hold on to their kids or a husband. And like, they're just saying like the worst things about them. I mean, yo, people listen to this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) and basically just start to say like they just confessed for the money and did they confess for the money maybe they were poor did they confess to screw over leah because they were mad at her maybe and maybe this was all just combined 
with them being tired and possibly feeling a true sense of regret. You know, like, like what did I do with my what life? did I do with my life? But that one seems a little less likely because one year later they retracted their confessions. <laughs> Spiritualism rejoiced, welcoming them back into the fold. And the girls continued working in any capacity they could, which now was just shot to shit. I mean, no one wanted anything to do with them. They're if like, you what do you believe? They're like, what do you believe? Is it real or is it not? You literally showed all your secrets and now you're trying to say that that wasn't true like what's the story here i think they were just not i think they were not doing well physically or emotionally or mentally any of it and i think they were just flailing yo they rode the child celebrity wave yeah you know yeah you got really big you did your shit wasn't as cool when you were older made a couple mistakes got back to it and still nobody cares it just sucks um, and they just, I don't know. They never really got back to where they were before. And uh, Kate and Maggie were still in poverty when they passed away. And all of them were dead within three years. Leah died in 1890. Kate died in 1892. And Maggie died just a few months after Kate in, 19, in 1893. Were they frauds? Were they really speaking to the dead? Who knows? But we do know that in the early 1900s, years after they all died, people were kind of curious. They were like, what was going on in that house back in the hamlet of Hydesville? They can make their toes clap. Mm, 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 mm. So people did go back and dig up that cellar, and a skeleton was indeed found behind the cellar wall in the haunted house where it all began. Stop it. And they, that's the story of the Fox sisters. They fucking killed somebody here. <laughs> they put that body down there. They put somebody down there. And the body was Jean Benet Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. It's the Fox sisters. <laughs> wow. I know. So it's like this weird thing where like, you know, it's like they're frauds. They're not. They're frauds. And then it's like they're really was someone murdered in that house I have and buried. Went, I have one there to be like a space-time continuum so that that body was placed there after they died Ooh. to go back and prove that they were right. That would be a fun <sighs> like thing. Like a Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would be great. Plant uh. a random body. How fun. Mm. I can't wait because I'm also doing Three Sisters and their stories are so different <laughs> from your story. Perfect. This is going to be great. Let's go get another wine-based drink. Let's do it. Goodbye. Did you know that Elvis once showed up to the White House high as a kite with a bunch of guns? Did you know that Eleanor Roosevelt once had a romantic relationship with a lesbian reporter? Hi, we're Stephanie. And Tux. From Beyond Reproach, a comedic history podcast where we talk about political scandals like how FDR's grandfather made the family fortune smuggling dope. And messy government officials like President Johnson, who named his dick Jumbo and would wave it around at people on Capitol Hill. Gross. (laughs) And we do it all while drinking 
period-appropriate historic cocktails, like JFK's favorite, the lime daiquiri. We are not historians. We're just a couple of drunks who never shut up and love history. We hope you'll join us on Beyond Reproach for some big facts, good laughs, a little bit of swearing, a lot of drinking, and a real good time. You can find Beyond Reproach wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We're back. Back in action with some cute teacups full of hot liquid. Listen, <laughs> things got really serious around here. It's pouring down rain. Mm-hmm. It's dark as fuck because mm-hmm. I had back to school night tonight. And now you have a China teacup in front of you. I do. It's very exciting. Um, do you want to know what you're drinking? <laughs> I do. So this is called the Bronte Bitches. <laughs> and cause that's a great alliteration. And I decided to make a vassal for them. Very nice. So I, on very low heat, like two on the stove, I turned mm-hmm. it to two. And I put in half a bottle of red wine, cloves, mm. cinnamon sticks, and orange peels. <gasps> I and love then just it. let it sit for like hours. And <sighs> now we have teacups of just hot, hot wine. Mm. so good it's so good we have to like make this for thanksgiving it is it's so delicious <laughs> i had to strain out the clothes oh. and shit it's touching this is touching I my spirit love it i just feel warm from head to toe and i actually like love that it's raining now outside because it makes me feel even more cozy yeah i didn't know what to expect because like a vassal the only ones i've gotten in the past are pre-seasoned and you just heat up the bottle in like a mm. thing of boiling water so this is the first time i've actually taken wine and put shit in it it's so good and it just like I like that it's not super sweet. You just get a lot of like spices and just like the bitterness of the wine. Yeah. But it's so warming. Like, oh, and I forgot to say fantastic. afterwards I sprinkled um, brown sugar in mm. it. So like once we once that starts to really melt in it, it mm-hmm. should we should get a little bit of brown sugar at the end. Mm. It's perfect. <sighs> I feel like I'm I feel like I'm drinking like one of those baskets of pine cones with the lights in them. Right. <laughs> Yes, that's what it tastes like. That's that's called cloves. Um, I'm so excited. Okay, so what do you know about the Bronte sisters? <sighs> okay, so I know for sure that Charlotte Bronte is a writer. Yes. I think they were all writers, but I think she's the most famous one. Right. Did she write, uh, what was it, Emma? No, not Emma. Um, Jane Eyre? Yes. Okay, she wrote Jane Eyre. Um And that's, like, all I know. Okay, excellent. So, yes, Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre, and you're about to get your fucking socks blown off. Okay. So, the Bronte sisters have had, since they died, a book, a think piece, an article written about them every year from the 1800s until now. What? People are astounded by these women. I had so many sources to go on. Um, I listened to the Legacy podcast. I read multiple excerpts of all their books. Charlotte obviously has the most written about her, but I also don't think that she wrote the best book of all of the sisters. So that's very interesting, even though Jane Eyre is like definitely a great book. And I know some people follow it like a guide to heaven. I just, this is going to get great. Okay, let's fucking fight about it. I'm here. (laughs) Get ready. (laughs) So dad is Patrick Bronte, but 
his last name was Bronte, like with a Y on the end. Hmm. And that was like mildly Irish. So because oh. of where he lived in England, he changed it to Bronte to sound more English to kind of get rid of some discrimination. He was a curate at a church in the Moors. So like being in the Moors Ooh. seems like so like romantic. Fun. Yeah. It just sounds very romantic. Well, I think they might be the reason that the Moors yeah. are romantic because they, all three of these girls were famous, famous yeah, writers. It's just like, if you're going to date someone, you have to tread across the moor. Yeah. And they're also like seriously far away from things like London where it's like, yeah, big and bold. It's like, this is out in the moor. Did one of them write Wuthering Heights? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because whenever I hear of the Moors, I always think of Wuthering Heights Yes. because that book was so depressing to Yo, me. Yo, fucking I was like, why are these people even trying to date? Right. So like, honestly, my argument is that I really think Wuthering Heights is a more famous (laughs) novel than Jane Eyre. I'm not. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're right. Like Wuthering Heights is on high school reading lists. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) sisters wrote those two fucking books. That's crazy. That's insane. Okay. So he married a woman named Maria Branwell in 1812. And like I said, he's a curate, which is like clergy adjacent. Okay. It's like a weird like church position. So Patrick and Maria had six total children. That's a lot of kids. And keep in mind, they got married in 1812. So let me break this down real quick. They had Maria in 1814, Elizabeth in 1815, Charlotte in 1816, Patrick in 1817, Emily in 1818, and then Anne in 1820. Whoa. So needless to say, the mom died a year after that. Oh, my God. Um, She was 38 years old after having six kids Mm. back to back. They think it may have been uterine cancer. And just so this is the first tragedy of the Bronte family. They lost their mom at 38 years old. Mm. And the oldest one of them is you know only six seven oh my god so now daddy's left with six kids alone i I, I can't even imagine Mm -mm. that is just it's so many kids so quickly one boy and you're talking about supporting on a clergy salary five girls and a boy oh my gosh wasn't um jane austen's father wasn't he a clergyman too like, i think he like may that? have been yeah because i think they also like didn't have like a ton of money yeah growing up i, th- I think if i remember that episode correctly <laughs> we'll have to go back and listen. go back and listen back and let listen. us know <laughs> so we did her along with professor mcgonagall and oh, we think that McGonagall's life was based off of Jane Austen. It must have. You have a theory. A think piece. That's our theory. Someone write a think piece and base it on that episode. It'll change the world. <laughs> okay. So after Maria dies, Elizabeth, her sister, who they end up, the kids end up calling Aunt Branwell because that was their maiden name, um, comes to live with her brother-in-law just to help raise the kids. She's just like, I'll come help you. Patrick is extremely generous with his children. He wanted them to be educated. He supplied them with books and magazines as much as he could. Because obviously, like we said, they weren't super wealthy. He also shot them, 
taught them to be a good shot with the gun. There we go. The, okay. He just wanted them to know how to do stuff. And like after he lost his eyesight, Emily was really good at like catching turkeys and shit. Even though turkeys are an <laughs> American thing. Turkeys. What, what type of poultry do they have in England? Who knows? Geese? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, that they're catching things to eat. Patrick made um many very unsuccessful attempts to remarry which is so sad but like after a little bit he realized he's gonna be a widower for the rest of his life Aww. so he turned you can get back out there come he on tried. believe in yourself he tried but you know six kids and a job at the church is Ooh. not appealing to a lot of the ladies yeah um and a sister-in-law to boot so he dedicates his entire life to the church, taking care of the sick, the homeless, the less fortunate. Aunt Branwell, who's kind of their governess now, teaches the kids math and um, the alphabet and how to sew. And sewing would become really important to Charlotte, Emily, and Anna. As they got older, they would sit up late at night and sew together and discuss their literature. So it was like Ooh. something they did like with their hands while they were talking. This to me sounds very little women. Very little women. And also like kind of what women are gravitating towards now yes. of like, I want to be a part of something where like we can get together and like knit or crochet. I think that's why those things are coming back. Right, let's like talk it out. Let's just talk. But like, have an activity to bond over. Let's do a paint night. Yeah. Drink some wine and talk. I love it. It is. It's mm. very that. So because they lived in the moors, they were really far away from other people. So the girls and their brother, Bronwell, end up being kind of isolated at home a lot. Mm. So the kids decide, specifically the four youngest ones, that they, they're going to like go out and come up with this elaborate fantasy world. So they start creating these kingdoms with hmm. like history and politics and backstories and they do plays and they write, they write about them in these little tiny matchbooks with like codes. So adults what? can't read them, but like only they can read them amongst each other. Um, one, for example, was Angria and the Glasstown Confederacy. Glasstown is the capital of this fake world. And there were soldiers and rebellions and whatnot. The other one that's even more elaborate is the Gondel Chronicles, which was about some imaginary island in the South Pacific ruled by women, frequented by civil war, and overflowing with romantic intrigue. And again, this is on Matchbooks. It's illustrated. What? There's maps, and it's totaling over 60,000 words. What? Children. What? Wrote this entire fantasy world into existence. That's crazy. Little baby children. I don't understand that at I all. I don't either. So eventually, the four oldest girls, Maria, Elizabeth, Charlotte, and Emily, go off to school. This excludes Anne. She was too young at this time. She's very quiet. She was probably only like four or five years old. The school is for, it's like an education center for clergymen who are not super wealthy. Mm. So it's going to be all clergymen daughters. But this school brought tragedy to their family. Within a year of getting there, Maria and Elizabeth, the oldest two girls, get tuberculosis. <gasps> and they're removed from the school to come home. 
And they think if we get home, they'll get better. But within a few months of getting home, both of them die mm. back to back. Oh, my God. Maria and Elizabeth. So the family is like, well, let's fucking get Charlotte and Emily out of there because we don't know what the hell's going on. So they bring Charlotte and Emily home. And the loss of the two oldest children was devastating to the Bronte family. They had already lost their mom. And now Charlotte lost her two older sisters and her closest friends. Ugh. And it hits her the most. Emily ends up with a pretty big fear for the rest of her life of leaving home. And it, I believe it stemmed from this. Like the first time I left my home. Everybody died. Everybody died. Oh, it's kind of like that whole, like, I, I forget what it was, but it was like, like, oh, when this happens, like the people go away. Right. Like I just like that feeling of like, you know, we were just talking about that recently with my dad, how mm-hmm. like, you know, my brother is moving to Texas and it's hard. Cause like, you know, when my dad was little, like everyone in his family just got up and moved away. Cause he was so much younger than everyone. And it is like, it's devastating it is and it and it becomes something that's kind of like in your psyche it's like a ptsd type feeling where like this has happened to me before deja vu please don't do it again yeah when i also feel like the people knew so little of how the world actually worked that like i feel like the belief in things like that was so much more real of like if i like cause and reaction or whatever was so concrete that like logic didn't really play into it was like no 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 if i leave the house people die right like (laughs) so i just won't leave the house that's the only thing i have power to do is just not leave the house yes and and that's what emily ends up doing over her life yeah we also come to find out in the future that the school treated the school they were at treated the pupils really poorly like Mm. neglect poorly oh my gosh um they struggled all the girls that were still living with physical health issues for the rest of their life specifically charlotte blamed the school for this they dealt with hunger to the point of starvation coldness sickness that wasn't treated and you see all of this in charlotte's jane Eyre. i was gonna say in the boarding school yeah that is what it happens in her book. Oh, my gosh. So you can really see, like, the direct influence of, like, that crazy stuff that ha- is real. It happened to me. Mm. So the next few years, they stay at home and are educated by their aunt and their father's reading material. But in 1831, Charlotte, who is now the oldest sister, who I consider the bravest sister, is like, because she has to be. I'm going to get back out there. So she goes to this new school called Mrs. It's Mrs. Wooler's school. And the teacher's super fond of Charlotte. Charlotte was older than most of the other girls, a super goody two shoes, pretty knowledgeable about everything. And Charlotte makes some lifelong friends at this school, people that she corresponds with for the rest of her life, which is very odd for the Bronte sisters. They don't reach outside their family. It's like it's us and nobody. Mm -hmm. So it's weird that Charlotte does have these friends that she writes back and forth with. She does have to reluctantly come home from this school um, because her family needed her. They're running out of money. They don't have anything. There's all these kids. But she liked being independent. Three years later, Mrs. Wooler makes her an offer like, hey, if your family needs money, why don't you come back here and be a teacher? 
And Charlotte's like, of course, of course I'll come back and be a teacher. And she's like, and how about this? How about my little sister, Emily, who's terrified of going outside, like comes with me and half of my salary will pay for her to go to school. <gasps> totally fine. Like, let's okay. do that. So Charlotte goes, she's teaching classes, hated her students. She hates kids. <laughs> I can relate to a teacher that hates kids. <laughs> I love relate? it. I, who can relate? <laughs> um, and now Emily is there. Emily is 17 at the time. It's her first time leaving home since her sister's deaths. And she gets really homesick and her health starts to just fall apart. So she goes home and baby sister Anne takes her place. And Anne and Charlotte kind of have like an abrasive relationship. It's not the greatest. It's not terrible, but it's like. Charlotte lost her best friend's sisters, and Emily and Anne are, like, best friend sisters. So now oh. it's, like, you know what I mean? No, I know exactly what you mean. So it's, like, really tragic for Charlotte to try to have this relationship with the beautiful, young, vibrant Anne who doesn't remember their mom and doesn't remember the older sisters. And, like, just, I think Charlotte thinks <sighs> things are easier for Anne. I f- and like not to bring this back to my dad, but I feel like that was kind of his situation. Because yes. like he was literally born when my aunts were eighteen and sixteen. Yeah. So like he had a totally different childhood mm-hmm. than they did, and it, there was like tension between the three of them. Like they loved each other deeply, but like I feel like it was just different, you know. You and, don't like, understand me and, me and my parents the same way that you understand you and your parents yeah Even and like, they're all the same people yeah and it was like hard for him to like see the difference between like you know like in like my two aunts relationship because right. that was very strained their whole life you know and like i don't know it's just sibling dynamics are very intense they are and it's like they're everybody knows how important they are so it almost puts more pressure on the siblings to make them occur yeah so mm-hmm. now Anne and charlotte are at this school together the girls are well-read. They're educated. But they don't have any money. So they actually have really limited options for who they're going to marry. So they all have to become teachers or governesses. Mm-hmm. That's just what they have to do. Emily never becomes a governess. She spent like six months away from home, tops, ever. She... Anytime she did, like, something really, really bad happened, and she would just come home again super sick. However, she does become a really passionate cook. At one point, there was a cook at their house that fell and, like, really damaged her leg and then couldn't do all her work. So Emily went into the kitchen to help her and ends up, like, being an amazing chef and baker. Ah. And, like, this, it was, like, a passion of hers at the house. And she would, like, go into the kitchens and, like, help people. I love that. Yeah. And because she's such a homebody, she's like, this is what I love. Let me be in the kitchen. (laughs) Who cares? I love when people find their passion like that. Exactly. That's so heartwarming. (laughs) And then Aunt Anne is doing her best to, like, run the finances of the family and, like, sparingly use the money and make sure the girls get what they need. Because let's keep in mind, like, She's not married to this dad. This is her brother-in-law of her dead sister. She's just like right, like she's not even help. directly related to him. Yeah, she's just fucking helping him, and she's being super cool about it. So then, 
Charlotte and Anne bounce around with random jobs, trying to, like, make the family money, mostly as governesses. Charlotte only ever lasts one season at a family's <laughs> house because she hates kids so much. And mm-hmm. everybody's like, we'll try a different Mary Poppins. Thank you. Um, but Anne stays with a family from 1840 to 1845. For, so for, like, five years. But let me tell you why it ends. Haven't talked about their dickhead brother in a while. <gasps> That's right. Patrick. Wow. What's he up to? Patrick Bronwell. Same name as her dad. So he goes by Bronwell. Okay. But, but same name as dad. So he's like Patrick Bronwell Jr. So he gets a job and gets him a job at the house that she's working at because the son gets a little bit older and once boys reach just reach a certain age they can't have female teachers anymore or that's how it used to be because huh. like you need somebody sophisticated right you can't have just like a woman doing like, the job okay look finger painting was nice but let's get down to brass math and tacks <laughs> okay let me tell you um so meanwhile 78 percent of the teachers in the world are women yeah. <laughs> okay so he's the teacher and he is kind of a tragedy like he was the genius of the family he was supposed to go big places do big things a waste of talent like he tries <laughs> to get into art school like two times and then gets like super disheartened and quits altogether and gives in to alcohol and laudanum and now he's working with his sister teaching the boys of this place that she loves with these kids and this family that she loves and he's like i'm just gonna have an affair with the mom no an affair with Patrick. the mom no so he has an affair and uh Imagine how, like fucking hot that would be though <laughs> it would be hot it's a, <laughs> it's a hot story it's a hot story if it wasn't so tragic for the women involved <laughs> i would be <laughs> uh it's probably great for it's the be like a romance involved. novel it's really great for the mom involved because she was probably in an arranged marriage as it was probably so she was like i'll fuck whoever comes yes. in as long as i want it i also feel like all the bronte sisters are like scribbling down everything that happens literally <laughs> Also, he's so young, you can, like, tell him what to do. You know what I mean? Oh, you, like, yeah. You I mean, it's the classic cougar situation. Right. Yeah, very classic cougar. So Anne finds out about it and leaves the position. Doesn't tell on her brother. Doesn't ask him to leave. It's just, like, I'm going to excuse myself from this career because I feel like it's morally wrong. And then, of course, shit breaks loose and he gets fired. Mm. So... Then they're all kind of at home again. And Charlotte gets this idea of, like, why don't we start a school for young girls? We keep trying to teach schools. Why don't we, like, just fucking start a school? (laughs) So Charlotte's like, okay, me and Emily are going to travel somewhere. And everybody's like, not a good idea. (laughs) But she's going to do it. She's like, no, me and Emily, we're going to go to Brussels. We're going to sharpen up on our French so that we can start, like, a really legitimate school for girls. Um, so they go and they're like, we'll teach a few classes while we're here and you'll take a few classes free of charge, but they're there and they get this sudden bad news that their aunt Elizabeth Bronwell has died. (sighs) So they're like, fuck. So they just pack up their shit in France and in Brussels and they come home. God, there's probably so many steamer trunks full of petticoats and girl, she died of a bowel obstruction. (gasps) No. A poop blocker. 
Oh my gosh, gotta get that smooth move tea. I just feel really upset about that. I didn't I want that. to research that. I hate that for her. So poor Aunt Elizabeth. She's like not living your best life. No, she just raised her brother-in-law's six kids. Half of them died, and now she died of a poop obstruction. Ugh. Terrible. So also though, she left nine hundred dollars to the Brontes in her will, which at that time was one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. Oh my god! So she had all her own fucking money. And she was, like, just trying to help them out. So she left them a ton of money, and they could pay off their debts and, like, get a little bit more comfortable. So when the girls were in Brussels, Charlotte had been teaching English, and Emily had been teaching music. Emily's like, I'm not fucking going back. I don't like being away from home. Charlotte's like, I'm going to go back. The reason that my girl Char went back is because she had fallen in love (sighs) with the head of the school. But he's married. (sighs) And not at all interested in Charlotte. That we know. That we know. (laughs) So she wrote him four lengthy letters that we know of that went unanswered and that he ripped up. But the ripping up of them applies guilt to me. Doesn't it imply guilt that you rip it up to try to hide it? Like if somebody wrote me a lovesick letter, I would be like, producer, look at fucking this. This is hysterical, right? Like, I wouldn't rip it up and try to hide it. True. True, true, true. So anyway, wife finds it ripped (gasps) up in the trash and pieces it back together. It's a whole thing. (gasps) Anyway, the fucking London Times publishes (gasps) them after Charlotte (gasps) dies. Isn't that terrible? It's after she dies, so she doesn't know. I'm not going to lie. I'm glad it was after she died. I... (laughs) I thought it was just going to be like, random woman sends man a love letter. No, it was after okay. she got famous and died, but it's still like, that's it's still so really upsetting. It's so private. And like, I don't know. The letters also say to me that like, she just felt very strongly. Like, I'm sure she was just like full of emotions all the yeah. time. And like, didn't know yet that she was supposed to be putting them into like books, books. and not like letters to married men. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Letters to married men, not a good way to go. No, this isn't letters to Juliet or letters to Cleo. It's letters to married men. This is really terrible. My other alt rock band. <laughs> letters to married men. So she ends up coming home. Her heartbroken, of course. Her dad's sight is failing. Her brother's drunk as fuck all the time. Um, and Charlotte's just like, you know what? I'm going to abandon this school idea. But. She starts to snoopy snoop. She's like, what are my little sisters doing? So she goes into Emily Homebody's journals and <sighs> finds out that Emily has been writing this perfect poetry. She confronts Emily about it. And <laughs> Emily goes off in a fucking eight day rage or some shit. Like what? You read my fucking private journals. Like you can't oh. do that. And they're all poems about their imaginary world that like oh, they used to live in. Then. Yeah. So like <gasps> Emily's still kind of living in this, but Finally, Charlotte talks them into publishing a book about poetry. Charlotte writes 19 poems. Emily and Anne write 21, and they publish it together under the male names Kerr, Ellis, and Acton Bell. Now, this book gets published and sells three copies. (gasps) And they're mortified. But this did spur them forward forward they're like okay people didn't like our poems but we can write we know we can write well and to be clear like it might not even be that their poems were bad it's probably just that they were like nobody's 
publishing a book of poetry. People don't like poems. You know, and like if you don't have a good press person, like if you don't have a good marketing person, like I'm sure even back in the day, like who likes a poem? Oh, I'm Emily just Dickinson does. Emily, she <laughs> loves Robert Frost a poem. loves a poem. My Angelou loves a my ex boyfriend's best friend who tried to kiss me and is a weirdo. Ooh, um, get that out of here! Take yeah, it he like to the trash. He made me so mad. He like won a prize. Like when like he like literally like won this like fellowship of the American poet people. Hate him and already. got like tens of thousands of dollars like basically just a whole year's salary to write the next great american poem and just didn't do it lame <laughs> hate, that. hate that hate him <laughs> i hope you're not listening i hope you are <laughs> and i hate you now you know um okay so they get really upset about this poem thing but they're like you know what we're writers we don't yeah. need we're gonna write novels so here we go fuck that so Charlotte first writes a novel called The Professor and it does not take off and like and nobody's reading it and obviously she's still Curer Bell. So Curer Ellis and Acton Bell are their male names. And then uh, Anne and Emily write their first two novels and both get attention. But it wasn't easy. They went around to several publishers as women and nobody would publish their books. Mm. So they decide to pay to have their books published. They're like, we'll pay you 50 bucks, which is $2,000 today. And uh, they get published. Anne's book is called Agnes Gray. And Emily, the homebody, wrote on her first try, (gasps) Wuthering Fucking Heights. Oh, my God. On her first try, Katie. There she goes. Off her, to the races. Her first try. I can't even imagine. With Heathcliff. It's still so prominent today. It's on the high school reading list. It's one of the few. It wasn't on my high school reading list because I went to dumb private small Christian school. <laughs> I had to read it. Um, But. <laughs> Unbelievable. But I remember specifically reading it outside of school. Like. People still read it all the time. It is such a cultural touchstone. It really is. It's the most famous of all the books that I'm talking about tonight. Yeah, for sure. Unless we argue Jane Eyre is. We'll see. So people say that Emily was the sphinx of writing. She was really good at it and did not want to be famous. Mm. She, There's not a lot of... knowledge of her life it's scarce because of her fear of being outside she loved to be in the moors she loved to be at home doing chores and cooking she loved animals she befriended all the stray dogs on the property she was just at peace where she was yeah so it's crazy to me that that shit came out of her brain but creative thinkers are thinkers and we don't know a lot about people who are struggling back then with mental health issues or people who are struggling with learning deficits. So we don't know what she was dealing with. Like maybe she could have been agoraphobic and just like had yeah. a true fear of being outside. And like her creative juices were flowing only at home. She kind of also like reminds me a little bit like I'm picturing her like if we took a positive spin on like a Luna Lovegood. Oh, yeah. Just someone who is like. I'm different. I'm different and I'm totally fine with it. Like right. I don't like I see Nargles. You don't have to. And uh, I'm going to act differently because I do. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to be worried about it. it I feel like 
she's like, you don't need to worry about me. Yeah, it I'm doesn't seem like thing. Emily was pissed about anything. No. She she was in a good good place. Yeah. with Heathcliff. So, <laughs> whom I hate. So, Charlotte had failed with the professor, and then her sisters both hit success with their novels. So she was like, well, I'm furious. Ah! I'm supposed to be the good one. So she goes home and writes and writes and writes furiously for a few months and publishes Jane Eyre on her second try. Second try. Second go around. Uh, She was also an artist, though, and got critical acclaim for, like, some of her drawings. And even in the second edition of Jane Eyre, they asked her to do the illustrations. So Charlotte did her own illustrations in the second edition of Jane Eyre. That's so cool. I have to check what edition I have. Yeah. Because I, I have a really early edition of Jane Eyre You'll and Wuthering look. Heights. Like they're on my fake mantle in my foyer. <laughs> <laughs> my fake mantle in my fake foyer. <laughs> All I know is my friend who likes books, like really like knows a lot about books. She's an actual, like she's a writer. Like she walked in. She's like, what are those? Yeah. <laughs> How'd you get those? That's incredible. <laughs> so... Charlotte also spent her money from Jane Eyre to get her teeth fixed. She, like, really needed some dentist shit going on. She had, okay. like, some rotting teeth. Ugh. So she went and dealt with that. That's good. Um, and when her old boarding school realized how similar the situation in Jane Eyre was to their school, they totally put her under threat of a lawsuit. <gasps> she had to issue an apology, even Ew. though they fucking killed her two older sisters. It's like, excuse me? We're all dead and traumatized because of you, you assholes. And I have to apologize to you? Exactly. Okay. So, like I said earlier, Emily and Anne are like twins. They're connected at the hip. They're inseparable. And Charlotte's definitely a little jealous. But after Jane Eyre, Charlotte gets really famous. Like, Wuthering Heights was good. Anne's book is good. But Jane Eyre is famous. People weren't quite ready to understand Wuthering Heights yet. Mm -hmm. So they're like, you need to go to London. And you need to see people because they think, and not only do they think that Curer, Ellis, and Acton Bell are one guy, but they think it's a guy. So, oh my gosh, I totally forgot that they weren't themselves They yet. think they're men. So, and they think they're one man that's posing under three men. Oh my God. So, Charlotte and Anne go. Obviously, Emily refuses to go, but they go to London, the big city, to prove that not only are they multiple people, but also that they are female. And people are astonished. Not only that they're female, and not only that they're one person, but they're all fucking related. They're like, there's there are three of them, and they're sisters? And, I mean, it makes for a great literary story. And Charlotte is so famous at this point She's having to reject suitors, and none of these girls are married. They're all getting up, they're all getting into spinster age, and they are not married. But again, Bronwell's drunkenness starts to really catch up with the family, and he gets sick and quickly dies, just like their mom mm. from tuberculosis. Jesus. And then Emily is at home, and they're in London, and Emily gets sick. And she refuses to see a doctor. They really did not trust physicians. Really? None of them. 
And it, it's like a, it was a weird thing where they were just really uncomfortable with doctors. And they're like anti-maskers, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Anti-vaxxers. She, she like literally only a few months after her brother dies of tuberculosis. So Emily, author of Wuthering Heights, is now dead. That's the only book she wrote? In her 30s. She wrote another one. We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. She had grown so thin in her illness that the person who made the coffin only made it 16 inches wide <gasps> and said it was the smallest coffin he had ever made. Oh. Now, I did read somewhere, and this is gross, that her tuberculosis was exasperated because the drinking water that the family had was, like, adjacent to the graveyard, and it was, like, a runoff <gasps> of, like, dead decomposing bodies. So I don't even want to think about that. Um, <sighs> but Emily's dogs actually mourned her death for longer than anyone else. There was one specific dog that would howl outside her empty bedroom mm. into the night. And if you remember how evil Heathcliff was to dogs in the book, like he hung one from a tree. I think it really gives you like an insight into how much Emily felt like Dogs are important, and if you hurt a dog, you're a monster. Right. Like, that was her cue to be like, you want to know? Like, that was, like, the worst thing she could think yeah. of. Of, like, <laughs> you want to know what sucks? Killing a dog. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Um, I mean, same girl. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, I totally, like, I, I love that mindset of, like, I need to just totally – expose what a bad person this is <laughs> so this is the worst thing i could think of <laughs> he killed a dog so obviously emily's death is gonna weigh on Anne heavily because yeah. Anne and emily are super close so she writes a book called the tenant of wildfield hall you may have never heard of this book and there's a reason for that this book sold out in six weeks mm. it's a massive hit in the 1800s everybody loves it but the protagonist is a male with alcoholism who ruins an entire family oh my god and it is considered one of the first truly feminist novels virginia wolf said it's a masterpiece <sighs> there are people in literature that say it's a shame it hadn't been in print but Anne's health declined after it was published and hit the fucking newsstands. And Charlotte didn't like the book really? because it exposed the family. Oh, yeah. So when Anne got sick and went to the doctors, she went far away because she was like, well, I'm not going to make the same mistake Emily made. So she went far away to the coast to try to get some fresh air, make herself well, didn't help. And Anne, who Charlotte had a contentious relationship with because she was jealous and who just wrote this hit book, dies. Charlotte does not get her body brought back home to be buried. No. She gets buried on the coast, far away. Only one of the Brontes that's not buried in the family. And oh. then she refuses for the book to be reprinted. What? So that could be the most best of all the books. It's supposed to be. It is it's supposed to be. That sucks. 
That really sucks. And Bronte should technically have like the most famous book of these. So we'll it's, all it's have to read that. <laughs> and it sucks because I feel like she is the least famous of the sisters. She is. And she could have been the most famous if this if, one book. If this one book. Because I can't even imagine how seen women must have felt. Yeah. Because like, like we can talk about it in just the two of us, but like temperance was such a big thing at this time just because women were suffering at the hands of male alcoholism yes and it was this silent epidemic that like how could they connect with each other about it and now there is this novel that speaks to them and it's like if it wasn't happening to you it was happening to someone you fucking knew and it sold out and then it just went out of print it just went away and like not only a tragedy for Anne, but a tragedy for women And then there turns out there's this other um, book that Emily wrote. I don't know the name of it, but uh, Charlotte kept it from being published because she worried that it would taint Wuthering Heights because Emily was already dead and Wuthering Heights was so good that she was like, I don't want this to be like a thing that Emily didn't perfect and then I publish it and it makes (sighs) Wuthering Heights look bad. Like it could be she died being the writer of Wuthering Heights. Right. And now it's like, do I do Wuthering what Heights do I do? and this other book? And like, this other <laughs> random shit. Right. Exactly. So Especially because, yeah, she, she's right though. She didn't have time to really perfect it. Yeah. So. She had died. So it's hard. So then Charlotte is the last of all of her siblings alive. Mm. She writes three more books past this. And surely she becomes the first person to ever use the phrase the phrase the wild west really (laughs) she also from that book changes Shirley from being a male name to a female name and um she also wrote the book Villette which the literary world says is better than Jane Eyre wow so I don't know anything about that book but from what I was reading it was the three books she wrote after her sisters died and Villette is like a masterpiece eventually she did marry she's the only Bronte wow. sister that marries in her older age his name was arthur bell nichols and he worked at her dad's church and originally her dad turned down the proposal because of his low salary but eventually he caves and then her dad's like unable to attend this ceremony so charlotte walks herself down the aisle like <laughs> a boss like an old spinster <sighs> boss um so she married in the june of 1854 and apparently the marriage was very very happy but short after the honeymoon she got quickly pregnant and had extreme morning sickness and so i know morning sickness in movies is played as like a girl like vomiting sometimes but if you're not treated, you can suffer from severe hydra- dehydration Yeah, because you're just your body's vomiting up everything you eat. And it's really dangerous. And this causes Charlotte to die <gasps> while she's what? pregnant. Oh, my God. At the age of 38. Patrick Bronte, the dad, outlived all of his children, what? his wife, his sister-in-law, all Four, five daughters and one son. Not one of the Bronte women lived past 40 years old. 40. None of them. They all died pre-40. 
1973, astronomers discovered three asteroids and named them after the Bronte girls. Oh, and there's nice. a crater on Mercury named after them as well. But I think other than putting them in the stars, the most amazing thing they did was create dark, well-crafted love story classics. And they showed the reality in all of these classics of how hard life is for the common woman. Mm. Their novels have had a tremendous impact on the classics and on the world. And just big cheers to Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, and Tenant of Wildfield Hall. Really? One for each girl. Cheers. So cheers to the Bronte sisters. So that's the story. I just like... They're all such a talent. That's incredible. And weird, weirdly differently talented. Yes. Even though they're all writers. Yes. So I loved it. Perfect. All right. Now we need to get a little segment we like to call. What is it? Six now? Just the, the six, six of us. us. <laughs> Just the gaggle of girls. <laughs> Wow. So I just could not stop when you went through the physical description and you're like, there are three white women with brown yeah. hair. I was like, same, <laughs> same. Three we got a type. <sighs> yeah. Um, yeah. Very similar. I think physically, I feel like they were all like kind of child prodigies, you know, mm-hmm. like. I just kind of feel like they got started early, you know, like again, like Maggie and Kate were 11 and 14 when they started this whole thing. Right. And what's the difference between making up a haunted house story and making up a story about a kingdom in the Moors? There's all nothing of it, different. No, they all require imagination. And it's like kind of like where you funnel it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's what do you choose to do with your imagination? And how were you limited as a woman in the 1800s? Because that also plays a really big part in this. It does. And it's very different. Both of these sets of women were living around the same era. Mm -hmm. One's in the Moors. One's in the Northeast of the U.S. And it really just is interesting. It is because I feel like they're also kind of experiencing similar things across oceans Frankly, they have very few job prospects. I mean, it's just like you're either a governess or eventually you're a medium. A medium was a very like female centric job. So I'm sure like and I think that's because of the Fox sisters. The Fox sisters started the practice of women being closer to the other side because I think that women have women know what people want to hear, I think, more than men do, especially in this era. So it's like yes. the Bronte sisters are reaching people because they know how to tap into that emotion. And that's why the Fox sisters were successful. They're like, I know that you have a child that died and you want to know that like they're okay and they love you. Right. And I mean, just the idea of reaching the other side is that they're both reaching for love. Yeah. That's what they're doing. Like when you're typically when you're reaching for a mentalist or a spiritualist, what you're reaching for is someone you've lost. And when you're reading a romance novel, you're reaching for something you want that you don't have. Yeah. And it's a very interesting, like, intertwining of, like, I'm going to lay these emotions out on the table. Like, who's perfected it as a man? Nicholas Sparks, like, alone? (laughs) alone? On his rock? (laughs) On a lighthouse? (laughs) 
Um, in, a, in a notebook? <laughs> <laughs> on a walk to remember? In a message in a bottle? <laughs> um, <laughs> I just can't. I just feel like they're, you're right. Yeah, that was such a good point that they're, they're both telling you a story. Yeah. And women are storytellers. That's been the female job for centuries. Yeah. And I think it's why they were kind of pushed in. Like, you can be a governess, but you can't be a professor. Mm. You know? And, like, you, you can't can be, you you can can be, be an, an alcoholic guy who's yeah. an affair with your wife. It's like, you can be a medium, but you can't be a scientist. You can be these things that can put you in a box, but you can't actually expand because at this point, it's like, okay, things are still frivolous for you. It's I mean, like, not even a scientist, not even Harry Houdini. Right. Not you, even Harry Houdini. You can trick me, but you can't trick me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so annoying. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean by that? And I don't know, just like the whole thing. And I just, I think the theme of temperance is also very interesting because like the Fox sisters, I mean, they fell into alcoholism themselves, which is interesting because their base was the Quakers who were very into temperance right. and like banning alcohol. And then you have the Bronte sisters who were very strongly affected by men's drinking. And I think because the Fox sisters were the men in their own lives, they didn't have like men in their lives, really, when you think about it. They yeah, had, no. had husbands for short periods of time, but like... None of them really worked out. I mean, Leah was married three times. Like, yeah, I think that in a weird way, like they had to be the men in their lives. And then it was just like this weird self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, I guess we'll be alcoholics. Like, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's like you have alcohol at the time being such a problem for women, whether it being the men around them drinking or they themselves drinking themselves to death. Absolutely. And I mean, just the fact that Anne's novel not only like laid out her brother's story and how much mm -hmm. it affected her and her life, but also, I mean, cause you know, like that was her job that she lost because of him, Yeah, you know, but it also like pissed Charlotte off enough that she didn't want it re like reprinted. Yeah. So like alcoholism really affected these women's lives. Yeah. Well, and also it brings up an interesting question of like when you are a sibling of writers and other writers, like whose story gets to be told? Like I know Amy and David Sedaris, like they start this conversation a lot of like David Sedaris writes about his family very intimately and he has to ask everyone in his family, like, are you okay with this? Mm. Because it's very like intimate stories about tragic things that happened and the death of their sister. And it's like, what happens when you're all writers? It becomes uncomfortable. It, it, and I think that's also a centerpiece of like, we're talking about not just siblings, but sisters. And, you know, I mean, you were the closest thing I had to a sister growing up. So I don't know what it's like to like live with other sisters. Exactly, wow. Past tense. Great. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like. I had brothers, which is, it is different. It's very different. And I just feel like you have these very intense relationships that also then get fused with a, a tense career. And I just think the different paths that all these women took with their personal relationships and career is very interesting. I see Charlotte as so much of a Leah in mm -hmm. this story where it's like, 
Charlotte had her crew. She was like ready to go. And then they died and she had to weave herself into what's happening Mm -hmm. with um, Emily and Anne. And the same thing was true with Leah. I think maybe at first she came home and was like, girls, stop pretending there's fucking ghosts. I'm going to take you to my house and I'm going to help you not pretend there's ghosts. And then they got there and she was like, oh, we can make some fucking money. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She kind of got into it like after she was with them because she was like, you know, if I want to be part of the crew, I got to crew up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I was also thinking a lot about like, them working separately but also together and I don't know there was a lot of like swapping of like relationships and jobs and positions between them all and then you have two siblings out of the three revealing the secrets Mm. and what do we think about that about like you know you have what was it Charlotte and Anne going out and like telling the world like, no, we are the authors. This is our story. And like, you know, I wonder if Emily was kind of like, I didn't want that being told. I didn't want people to know I'm the Wuthering Heights girl. Yeah, exactly. I wanted them to think that it was some Wuthering Heights man and leave it at that. Ellis Bell. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think about like Maggie and Kate just like totally exposing it and being like, kind of like, again, like taking stories from each other. And like, when is it, taking a story from someone else being like, you know what? Like we were all in this together, but like, fuck that one sister. And like, we're going to do what we want. But also it's like, it's their story too, though. It's also their truth to tell. So when you are sisters, where are the lines? There aren't any. The limit doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) There aren't any. And that's why both of these stories are very interesting because you have love and betrayal and death and alcoholism and devotion. And like, there's so many emotions mixed up in both. It's just very emotional. The way that they had to interact with each other and the way that they all had to end up either alone or with someone or dead or with money or with no money. Yeah. I mean, they all kind of had like tragic endings. Yeah. Because I mean, what other option was there for a woman of the 1800s? Honestly, like <laughs> you lived a thousand like Queen Victoria, but that's it. Yeah. And I don't know. I just. I think it's a really inter- like and I also think it's interesting that even now, like we're talking about them not as individuals, but as groups of sisters. Yeah, because as much interesting, good, important things that they did for history as a whole they did it together for better or for worse. I don't know. Oh, that's really sweet. I like that. Me too. All right. Are you ready to toast? I am. All these ladies? Let's do it. All right. Who would you like to toast this evening? So I want to toast like the imagination that you have for yourself in not settling. So the three women that I covered were big dreamers and thinkers and they didn't want to be a teacher or a governess or marry the wrong guy or work in the wrong town. They just wanted to thrive and they did it as themselves instead of like caving to what people expected them to be. I love it. So cheers to the Bronte bitches. Mm. Okay. 
I'm going to toast women who give others hope. I think that some people think that there is absolutely no good in what the Fox sisters did. (laughs) They took advantage of people. They took their money. You know, all these things are true. But I think there's also some good in giving someone the hope that their loved one is in a good place and they love them. And I think there, like, there's that one guy, Horace Greeley, who on his deathbed just said, bless the Fox sisters. Mm. He was like, I can finally die and not be afraid of death because of them. And like, that's some serious hope and faith. Like that is some serious stuff right there. And I don't know, like sometimes I think it's nice to be, to instill hope in others that maybe they wouldn't have, you know, without it. I love that. That's a great idea. Yes. All right. Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So I've been reading the Throne of Glass series. <gasps> I've um, never even heard of it. So it's like a Sounds seven- like the Bronte sisters wrote it. It's crazy. <laughs> Sarah J. Mass wrote it. Um, so it's a seven-book series, and it's so much like a late teenage Game of Thrones. Ooh, that sounds fun. Yeah. So it's like a later young adult fiction where there's definitely some sex stuff. There's definitely a lot of death and whatever, but... It is Game of Thrones to the point where you're like, I don't know who's going to die. Ooh, I don't know who's okay. going to get paralyzed. I can't remember what character you're talking about because that person was only mentioned seven books ago. <laughs> so it's like one of those things where you're just okay. like juggling everything in your mind. And it's just really nice. I, I just like it. it. I love some lots, YA fiction. Lots of female heroines in Perfect. this fictional world um, who are, I would consider the book to have written stronger female characters than male characters in this game of Thrones version. Love it. They're like Khaleesi on steroids. (gasps) Okay. (laughs) He's gonna do. Okay. So fiance and I started watching this series recently because we finished Broadchurch (laughs) and I've been hearing really good things. It's called only murders in the building. Have you heard of this? No. (laughs) Sounds great. Okay, so it's a new Hulu original show, okay. and I'm dying right now because it's one of those shows that, like, is actually only releasing on Tuesdays, and so now I have to wait for the new episode. It stars Martin Short, <gasps> Steve Martin, and Selena Gomez. Get out. Get out of here with Ali, your it's the most perfect show. The three of them, there's a murder in their building. And they decide to start a true crime podcast about it and investigate the murder themselves. <laughs> there How are meta. secrets. How it's meta. So meta. And Tina Fey plays like a Sarah Koenig character who's Don't like. Don't know why you didn't say that up top. I know. Sorry. Everyone <laughs> is in this show and it's so perfect and kitschy and it's really funny and quaint and cute and of course it takes place in like what we're about to be in like fall to winter so there are lots of nice sweaters and coats and you and it takes place in this beautiful historic apartment building in new york like a classic six like not it's like more like a like a large apartment complex with a courtyard in the middle nice and Amy Ryan, who played Holly Flax in The Office, is in it. She plays a sexy bassoonist. I love Holly. <laughs> I love Holly. 
It's so great. I just, this show makes me feel like your cocktail makes me feel. <laughs> Warm, Warm inside, excited for more. <laughs> Just <laughs> only murders in the building. I, only murders in the building. I giggle during it, and then I'm also like, "Who the fuck is the murderer?" Like, it was me. Honestly, it's really exciting. So there's lots of cliffhangers, but again, it's very cute. So only murders in the building. It's so good. Highly recommend it. Um, yeah. All right. So. Find us everywhere. <laughs> We're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and all of it. But mainly, we want you to leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to us. And then if you go to Patreon, you get our bonus stuff. Yes! We're going to talk about who knows what. Maybe go soon. You'll find out whether we believe or not. Well, I didn't have that written down, but we'll no, see. we'll do it another time. <laughs> we'll do it oh, we'll do on it, Halloween. Ooh, on Halloween. We should do fun, a ghosty episode. So, but yeah, we do all sorts of fun things on Patreon. Um, so find us there. Join the community. But most of all, never forget that well-behaved women <laughs> exclusively eat white bread. That's true. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. Goodbye. to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye